Welcome to King Salman and the Stoics, a project of denvercolel.org. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? And more importantly, how can we maintain our strength of character? Our conviction that our morality, that our proper ways that we aspire to are right and that they should be aspired to and they're worth working for. How can we maintain the strength of those convictions in the face of knowledge, of knowing and seeing that the wicked sometimes prosper? There seem to be multiple paths to success in this life. How can we maintain our strength of character? Solomon reveals to us in the opening verses of chapter 9 an incredible, incredible lesson and opens up a certain depth that can really, really change a person's life if they tap into it. Solomon tells us, after having considered that there's too much going on under the sun, after having considered that it's impossible for man to truly grasp the depth of God's plan, and man does not understand what's happening beneath the sun. After having grasped that, says Solomon, I turn my heart to analyze it deeper, to try and take it apart a bit. True, I wouldn't understand everything, but try and understand what exactly is it about the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering? What's the breakdown of society? Where do people fall and why do they fall where, where they fall? Solomon says, I saw that the wise, righteous individuals and those who associate with them, they live in the hands of God. They live life with the knowledge and the peace of mind, the contentment, that whatever might come their way, they're in the hands of God and God has their best interests in mind. And I looked at that and I saw despite the fact that the world is such a confusing place, there are wise, righteous people and those who follow their counsel who seem to live in the hands of God. However, the average man, says Solomon, doesn't know the difference between being beloved and despised by God. And the reason is because there's something before man that's called kal, which literally translates as everything. And we'll try and tap into that in a moment. But there's an attribute, there's a concept that is called kal. And this concept called kal is the cause. It's what's behind the fact that the average man does not know the difference between right and wrong. The average man cannot differentiate between the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. They see people who are successful despite their wickedness. They see people who fail despite their righteousness. And so the average man cannot differentiate, cannot properly discern between the two paths. And the reason is because this concept called kal is before them. Well, what is this concept called kal? And without getting into the Kabbalistic background, which is beyond the scope of this conversation. In short, the attribute of call has to do with assertiveness, with self-expression, with self-development, with free will, with choice. It's the person who takes what they have and makes something great. It's the person who expresses himself in a way that leads to success. It's a person who has the self-control to hold off today to see more success tomorrow. Whether it's good or bad, but it's the idea of a person accomplishing, doing, growing, building its power, its strength. That's what this attribute has to do with. The attribute of strength, the attribute of being bold, of accomplishing, of being strong, of withstanding temptation, of withstanding the, the temptations of today so that I can see greater success tomorrow. That's what this attribute has to do with. However, within this attribute, there are so many paths, there's so many ways to get to success. There are those who withstand the temptations of today so that they can achieve enduring 
goodness, that they can give, that they can be pure, they can be kind, they can be close to God. There are those who take that path. However, there are those who withstand the temptations of today so that they can see success tomorrow, only that they can enjoy the temptations of tomorrow. There are those who will work, they'll slave so that they can amass wealth, so that they can lord over other people, they can trample on others, that they can indulge in fantasies, that they can amass wealth and property that is useless. So there are people who choose the path of assertiveness, the path of strength, and yet it's not necessarily good. And then, of course, there are those who assert themselves, who use the path of strength of character to achieve greatness, to achieve goodness, to achieve a giving spirit. But there are these and there are those. And because there are these and those, the average man is confused. And the average man doesn't see why one path, why the path of goodness necessarily leads to success, while it is the path of, 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 of wickedness that necessarily leads to failure. The average man does not understand it, doesn't see that. Solomon goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 9, everything that happens to everyone happens to everyone. Meaning, there's one happening to all. There's one destiny to all. To the one who is righteous, who's aligned with a higher purpose, who submits their strength of character to a higher cause, and to the one who's wicked, who has strength of character, but it's completely dedicated to their selfish in- interests. They have one destiny. There are these who succeed, and there are those who succeed. The pure-hearted, the one whose character is pure, and the one who's full of goodness, full of desire to give to others. The one who's impure, who's full of ulterior motives, who's full of evil desires and designs. The one who's willing, says Solomon, to give up of themselves for a higher purpose. They are willing to sacrifice for a higher purpose. And the one who's not willing to sacrifice for a higher purpose. The sinner and the one who is completely aligned with the ultimate purpose, with a higher purpose. Solomon contrasts here the sinner who always takes life or whatever opportunity has been given to him and he diverts it from its intended purpose versus the one whose goodness shines through in the perfect focus of whatever opportunities and and gifts they're given that they focus them solely on furthering that goodness, on giving further, on aligning with a higher purpose. Again, contrasting the sinner with one who is good and one who swears, says Solomon, and doesn't worry that they're not going to live up to their promise and one who's afraid to promise. The person who's afraid to promise, they recognize reality, they recognize truth, and they're dedicated to truth. And the person who swears at whim, who's not afraid that they will trip up and not fulfill the promise, they're not committed to reality. They act on a whim and they're not committed to reality. All of these different people, says Solomon, all of these contrasts that we've seen between goodness and evil, in both cases, there are these and there are those. There are people who follow path A and succeed, and people who follow path B and succeed, and people who follow path A and fail, and people who follow path B and fail. So what's the difference? Why should I choose morality? Why should I use my strength of character to build goodness, to give to others, to create unity, versus just applying it to my selfish desires and needs? And Solomon says in verse 3, this is actually great evil that happens under the sun. This idea that there's one destiny for all. And man's heart, the average person's heart, is full of evil and foolishness. 
during their lifetime, even when they're alive, says Solomon, and when they're full of strength, full of motivation, full of a sense that they can accomplish, even then, their hearts are full of foolishness, thinking there's no true reality. There's no absolute morality. There's nothing that we are obligated to, nothing that, that comes before us that we need to take for, to start with and say we need to align to this higher calling. There's nothing like that. Their hearts are full of foolishness and they act, as we said, on the whims of the moment. And that's when they're alive. Certainly when they think of death, certainly with regard to those who have already passed away from this world, certainly there's nothing left. All of the joys, all of the things they chased and acquired in life, done. In the grave, there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's none of that property. It's irrelevant how much money the dead person has amassed. It's irrelevant how much success they've achieved. It's all irrelevant. So to the person whose heart is filled with thoughts of evil, there's foolishness. Everything is foolishness. There's no absolutes at all. And therefore, life is foolishness and certainly death is certainly foolishness there certainly is nothing absolute nothing enduring in death in the minds of this average person that solomon describes however there's something beyond this and that is what solomon describes in verse four and this we'll, we'll try to take apart a little bit in verse four solomon introduces us to the person who's attached to life itself. And we'll try and define that soon. Solomon says someone who's, def- who's attached to life itself, there's trust, there's assurance, there's guarantee, there's absolute, there's concrete, absolute reality for the person who's attached to life itself. And Solomon says a cryptic statement, for the live dog is better than the dead lion. The dog and the lion. The lion is the king of the animals. And yet, the dead lion is worse off, is lesser than the live dog. What is this idea of being being attached to life? The Talmud relates in Sukkah 52a. The Talmud relates that there's a Messiah, the son of Joseph, who descends from the tribe of Joseph, who's killed in an ultimate war, in a great war that precedes the coming of the ultimate Messiah. And then Messiah, the son of David, the son of King David, comes along. And he asks God, God says, ask of me something. And he says, seeing that the son of Joseph, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, descending from the tribe of Joseph, died, the Messiah, who's the son of David, says, I want life. And God says, I will grant you life. And supports it and says, your grandfather, your ancestor, King David, already asked for life. And quotes a verse, I believe, in Psalm 21. What's going on in this conversation? What is going on? What exactly is King David or the Messiah, the descendant of King David, asking for in life? And the depth of it is as follows. Joseph represents the righteous man. Joseph represents the one who asserted himself, who had strength of character, whose strength of morality was incredible. They were able to withstand the most intense temptation. All that to align oneself with a higher cause. Joseph was perfectly aligned with his higher self. He knew that God brought him into this world for a higher purpose. He knew he had a soul. He knew he had a higher self. And he was perfectly aligned with that higher self. He had strength of character. And he was the quintessential man of success. And yet... That fails in the face of the final war leading up to the coming of Messiah. And the final battle against the powers of evil who 
they too assert themselves. They too have strength of character. They ultimately can prevail over even a Joseph. Even a Messiah, the son of Joseph, who has that morality, that strength of character, he too can be pushed aside. He too can be trampled on by the wicked who have the path of success. They have the principles of success. They have strength of character. They pass the marshmallow test. They're able to push aside the temptations of today, but only so that they can fully indulge in the temptations of tomorrow. And if you match these two strengths of character up, it isn't always clear who wins. Of course, Joseph endures. Of course, the righteous Joseph eventually comes back. Of course. But in order for his righteousness, for his strength of character, for his morality to be vindicated, there's another process that needs to happen. And that's the Messiah, the son of David. That's the Messiah, the son of King David. And what he asks for is life. And this is what Solomon describes here in verse 9. He says, One who is attached to life itself has assurance. He's attached to an absolute reality. And this is because life is not something that anyone built. A person can sculpt their body. A person can work out and become an incredible source of strength. A person can work out their character to an incredible degree. You pit one person who's really developed their character against a person who never bothered. It's light and day. There's no comparison whatsoever. So that's the, in the world of strength of character. And in that world, there are these and there are those. Sometimes the wicked seem to win. But then there's something else. There's life. Nobody builds life. Nobody develops life. People can take and build on what they are given by God. They can take, even science can take a cell and can create who knows what with it. A person can take their life spirit and use it to build themselves, use it to build their body, to build their character, even in a good way. But ultimately, the starting point is life. And that is something that's given by God. That's not something man has any part in creating. Man develops and forms and does things with that life that's given by God. Ultimately, though, life is God-given. And in that sense, there's nothing that man adds and when we touch on to that, we touch on to absolute reality. We go beyond anything that man created to discover the essence of reality, the life force of reality, which ultimately is God. And that's absolute reality. There, there's assurance, there's strength that's enduring. There's no other side to the coin. There is no evil. Evil has no place in the face of such a deep understanding that the source of all is life and the source of all life is God. Evil has no place. You can amass thousands of aircraft carriers, hunks of metal, incredible technology. Ultimately, without life, it's nothing. It's absolute nothing. And therefore, in the face of evil, in the face of strength of evil, there's one answer. And that one answer is to absolutely let go, to let go of everything you've built, even if it's good, to let go of all of that, to recognize our insignificance, our nothingness in the face of the source of life. And the paradox always is that when we do that, we really discover our deepest essence and we discover our deepest and most enduring strengths. And there's a fascinating point here that Solomon says the end of, of, of verse four, where he pits the dead lion against the live dog. And the Talmud Talmud relates to us in Tractate Shabbos 30b, a very interesting story which gives 
us insight into this topic. The Talmud relates that King David died on the Sabbath. King David died and King Solomon sent a message to the court asking a halachic question, a question of Jewish law. My father is dead, he said. And in Jewish law, a corpse may not be moved on the Shabbos, on the Sabbath. And the reason is because on the Sabbath, we don't move things that are useless. They're known as mukta. We don't move that which is useless. And a corpse is useless. So therefore, says Solomon, I cannot move my father. And the dogs of the palace are hungry. And God forbid, they'll come and they'll mutilate his body. What should I do? And so the sages responded and they said, take a carcass of an animal, cut it up, and give it to the dogs. Even though typically on the Sabbath, a carcass of an animal is also not to be moved. It also is muktzah. Here, for the sake of what's going on here with the dogs, the dogs are hungry and the dogs need to eat. You can cut up the carcass and feed it to the dogs. You also will have the added benefit that you no longer will be hungry and they no longer will bother the body of the deceased King David. As far as your father's concerned, said Solomon, uh, said the sages, the, the, the heads of the court to Solomon, there's a way to move him and there's a specific halachic process to do it through bringing a, a, an object such as a loaf of bread that is movable, that does have a use, putting it on the dead body, the deceased, and then moving it together. So because there's something here, like a loaf of bread that is usable, therefore moving the dead body is also allowed. And Solomon says, wow, this is incredible. And here Solomon applied the verse that we're reading here in Ecclesiastes 9.4, that the dead dog, sorry, the dead lion is worse off than the live dog. And what Solomon was saying was King David, who moments ago was the king of Israel, moments ago was at the top of the world. Today he's so useless. This moment he's so useless, he cannot be moved on the Sabbath. He has no use. And yet the dogs who are hungry, we can chop up the carcass to feed them. That we can do. The dogs are greater right now than King David himself because they're alive and he's dead. And the depth of this is that King David in his death, he showed us what life truly is. And of course, King David lives on. As we say, David, King of Israel, lives on forever. Of course, life endures But the life that was combined with the physical body, the physical body that was combined with the source of life with the soul, that ends at the moment of death. And now the body is useless in a certain sense. Of course, there's a resurrection and it all comes back. But at the moment, King David reveals to us that ultimately in death, you reveal that the source of life is enduring and so powerful. Because again, in in life, in this world, in this body, life is limited. We all know that life has a, has a clock, a ticking clock, and that it's limited. And we all know the limits of our body. We can only push ourselves to such an extent. And again, when we get into the strengths of this human being, of this body-soul connection, it can be perverted. Sometimes people take that strength of body-soul connection. They take that strength of human life, and they pervert it. They use it for negative purposes. All of that is true. In King David's death, he shows that when we put aside the body, when we put aside the material, physical, mundane, when we put, a, put aside the human being asserting his strength, and we tap into life itself, we uncover the source of reality. We uncover the true strength, the true source of everything good. And so to take this back for a moment, 
King Solomon is teaching us in the face of evil, in the face of seeing the wicked prosper, in the face of seeing how sometimes the path of wickedness can also be the path of success, in the face of seeing all of the above, says King Solomon, recognize what my father taught me in his death. Recognize that life itself is beyond anything that a human being can assert, can develop, can build. Life itself is pure. Life itself is sourced in the source of everything, which is God. And ultimately it endures and it leads to pure goodness of the world to come. That's life. Tap into life. It's said that if a person would simply think, would simply contemplate, would simply connect with being alive, they would be in a state of constant joy. It's because we tap into the concept of building too much. We are consumed with the idea of our assertiveness, of our strength, that we start to see the confusion. We start to move away from our core. We start to get exhausted and we start to get confused by what's happening in the world around us. Let's return to our core. Let's return to the fact that we're alive. Let's return to the source of all life, which is God. And that living that way, as Solomon said in the opening verse of chapter 9, living in the hand of God, recognizing your life is always in God's hand, always, forever, even after death. Recognizing that gives a person peace of mind, contentment. It allows them to live with a moral strength and to be confident about their morality. It allows them to live with peace of mind, with a confidence and goodness, and to ultimately experience true enduring success.